Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. As I begin, I want to tell you about an incident that happened just a couple weeks ago. A pitcher for the Washington Nationals baseball team was brought out in the ninth inning in order to close things up for his team. They said it's the ninth inning. The team was winning 25 to 1. So he didn't have a whole lot of pressure. He just needed to get the team across the finish line. In the process of that inning, though, he gave up a three-run home run. And after he saw the ball fly over the outfield fence, he promptly came off of the mound and threw his glove on the ground and gave a glare down to the umpire into the dugout. And as some were calling it, a grown-up tantrum. Well, this behavior on this night in the ninth inning found him looking for another job the next day. The general manager, in speaking to reporters, said that he believed the behavior that this pitcher exhibited was disrespectful to the name on the front of his jersey and disrespectful to the organization and to the manager. And essentially what the general manager was saying is that this pitcher was not living worthy of the name that he claimed to represent. And while we don't wear jerseys on a regular basis, we do bear a name every day. We carry a name with us, and we must live in a way that is worthy of that name. That name is the name of Christ, and we must live lives that are worthy of Christ. For the last two weeks, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And he's been updating the church there on his situation in Rome. He's under house arrest there. And we've seen that Paul has been clearly shaped by the gospel of Christ. That it shaped his thinking, his perspective about life and ministry. But now he's going to turn his attention to the Philippians and instruct them for them too to have their lives and perspectives shaped by the gospel. Let's begin this morning by reading our passage in Philippians chapter 1, actually verses 27 through 30. Verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through verse 30. Reading from The English Standard Version, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The first thing that we see in this paragraph is the exhortation that leads off verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And with this command, he begins a new section of the letter. A section that runs from verse 27 here all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. This section speaks of harmony, of love, and unity within the body of Christ. But all that that is found in this section is really unfolding this command that he gives here in verse 27 to walk worthy of the gospel. So verse 27 is really this umbrella command and everything else is further explaining this one command. And for our purposes this morning, everything else in this paragraph in verses 27 through 30 is an explanation of this exhortation. Therefore, uh, we will look first at this opening exhortation and then we, in the remainder of the paragraph, we're going to see four ways the church can obey this exhortation. But first, let's begin by looking at this opening command. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And as we said the last couple weeks, that Paul has been updating the church on his situation. That the gospel has been advancing even though he is in chains. And he's rejoicing at this. He's also... uh, speaking about the struggle that's in his own heart as he sits there chained up and he's speaking about whether he wants to go home to be with the Lord or to stay on this earth and continue his ministry. He's torn, but he's confident that he is going to stick around in order to continue his ministry because he loves these dear people. In verse 27, he now turns from talking about his situation to instructing the Philippians on what they should do in their situation. This is the first command of the book. There is no exhortation or command previous to this. And he came out of the gate with a big doozy of a command. And so let's see a few features of this command. The first thing we see in this command is the priority of this command, the priority. Notice that the sentence starts out with only, only. In other words, he's saying just one thing. The main thing I want to get across, the first priority in your lives and in your church is to be this. No matter what happens, make sure that you do this. He says he wants them to focus on this one thing, whether he visits them again or not. In other words, whether I'm there to hold you accountable or whether it's just before the Lord, you need to make sure that this is a part of your life. It's not dependent on his presence. So we see first the priority of the command. Secondly, we see the arena of the command. What is is all enveloped in this command? He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ or conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
The primary verb here simply means to live as a citizen, to discharge one's obligations as a citizen. And this isn't a very common word for Paul. Actually, as we've seen in the book of Ephesians that Pastor David's been preaching through, that he frequently uses the word to walk, to describe how we're to live our lives. Right? In Ephesians 4 verse 1, he says that we're to walk worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 4.17, to not walk as the Gentiles walk. In chapter 5 verse 2, to walk in love. Chapter Ephesians 5 verse 8, to walk in light. So a common word that Paul uses is to walk. But here he uses a different term. And it certainly shares similar emphases with the word walk, but it also has some unique nuances. Both words speak of living our lives, which is why it's translated here, conduct yourselves or let your manner of life. But as I said earlier, it also carries the idea of living as a citizen. As a citizen. Now remember that Philippi was a Roman colony. It is in Macedonia, but it gained a special status and in fact a status on par with the cities and colonies of Italy. And so it held the fact that they were Roman citizens there in Philippi as a high status. They wore their badge of Roman citizen very proudly. So in a secular sense, the Philippians knew what it meant to conduct their lives as a responsible Roman citizen. They knew what it meant to carry around that label and to make their decisions and to live their lives and to speak in such a way that represented that fact that they were a Roman citizen citizen. Everything that they did from the job site to the marketplace to their home needed to be fitting the one who was a citizen of the Roman Empire. But Paul is redefining this and refocusing it for the Christian community. Later in the book in chapter 3 verse 20 he's going to speak about our citizenship in heaven. A truth that I think he's, he's vaguely hinting at here by calling them to live as citizens. Believers are just passing through this life. Our citizenship is not on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. And therefore we live our lives in a way consistent with that citizenship. The heavenly kingdom that we will inhabit one day is where we receive our citizenship. And because the believer's citizenship is in heaven, he says that they must see to it that the totality of their lives aligns with the gospel of Christ. For the believer, everything in our lives must be governed by the gospel. We don't have the liberty of our church lives being according to the gospel, and then our Monday through Saturday lives being according to our own desires. That's not an option that Christ or the New Testament leaves available to us. In fact, trying to live two lives means that you haven't understood or you just simply aren't obeying the one Savior that we have. The Savior who is Lord over all of our lives. For when we submit our lives to Christ, we submit our entire lives to Him. Our lives are governed by Him. He is our Lord and we are His happy servants. We have surrendered all claims upon our lives. And so friends, this verse shines a light into every corner of our life. 
We cannot say that we are obeying this command if we simply do it at certain times during the week. It says that we are to be singularly concerned that every area of our life is aligned with the gospel. And so I think to obey this command, we must look at every area of our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we live perfect lives. This doesn't mean that we never sin and we never fail and there's not things that we're working on. Paul wasn't perfect. He knew that. He knew the Philippians weren't perfect. And he wasn't expecting them to live perfectly simply by giving them this command. But even though none of us are perfect, there's a difference between those who are endeavoring to obey this and those who aren't. And we must be among those who set our sights upon the fact that we want to align our lives with the gospel of Christ. He expected that the gospel would govern their thinking. It governed their speech. It governed their life decisions and their behavior at all times. And so the arena of this command is our entire life. Thirdly, the object of this command What is the gospel of Christ that the Philippians and we should live worthy of? This gospel that we've actually heard articulated at several points through this morning's worship service already. The fact that God has sent his son to redeem rebellious sinners and that all who place their faith in Christ are redeemed of their sin and given access to God the Father. The gospel is simply the good news that there is salvation in Christ. There's salvation found in no one other but Jesus Christ. God has provided a way through his son that we can be redeemed and adopted into his family. Therefore, in believing this gospel, Christians are submitting their lives to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Master. It's not just fire insurance. It's not just a backup plan in case your plans for your life fail. It is a totality of lordship over us. Christians give themselves back to God who owns us in the first place because he created us. Therefore, the object of this command is Christ. We are seeking to live our lives in a way that aligns with Jesus, that represents Jesus. That everywhere we go, we bear the name of Jesus. And we want to live consistently in a way that is befitting a follower of Christ. Fourthly, let's see the work required by this command. Because this gospel is so earth-shattering and so life-disrupting and yet so beautiful, so wonderful and so enrapturing. It prompts radical living. As we've seen the last two weeks, Paul's life, even in Roman custody, was radically controlled by the gospel. He had been placed into the mold of the gospel and he was being shaped by it. We saw that his speech was gospel-shaped as he sought to proclaim Christ even while he's chained. We saw that his thoughts about death and eternity were gospel-shaped as he thought about being with Christ or being here to further the ministry. His love and concern was gospel-shaped. It was concerned for those 
other believers in the gospel. And his joy and excitement and aspirations about his life were shaped by the gospel. It's no surprise then that Paul would then turn and his first instruction to the Philippians would be that their lives too would be shaped by the gospel. We must be vigilant about our lives, brothers and sisters. We must think about how we conduct our lives, how we spend the minutes and the hours and the days. They matter to Jesus. They should matter to us as well. For there is a world that is watching us. And there is a heavenly father that is watching us. The reputation of Christ is at stake in our lives. The gospel is at stake. Our salvation is at stake. You'll remember that Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If we are to walk the narrow path, we must examine our lives and see that we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Puritan Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary on this passage, he said, a man may sleep and go to hell, but he who would go to heaven must look about him and be diligent. A man may sleep and go to hell, but he who would go to heaven must look about him and be diligent. Friends, I ask you, have you been diligent about keeping a close watch on your life? That you're living in a way consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ? How you live amongst your friends, amongst your neighbors and co-workers? When you're at home simply with the family? Are you diligent? Is your life reflect your claim to believe the gospel? Fifthly, we see the corporate nature of this command. Now, we can tend to read instructions like this very individually. And we say, okay, I'm going to focus on my life, and I've been even exhorting you in that way. But we need to see that Paul is also speaking corporately here. He's speaking to the, the whole church body, that together they need to live in a manner worthy. And in the same way, again, he uses the term citizen, right? And to be a citizen of a country means that you don't just live as an individual in that country, but there's also obligations you have to the larger whole. And the same is true in the Christian community. We have responsibilities to the larger community, not just to ourselves. To be a member of the church means that we seek to live our lives in conformity to Christ. And we want to see others in the church live their lives in conformity to Christ. We want the church to be corporately living worthy of the gospel. And so with this command and this exhortation on our minds, let's use the remaining time we have this morning to look at four ways that the church then must live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Four ways we must live worthy of the gospel of Christ so that we would be faithful representatives of him in this hostile world. The first way that Paul explains for us to live out this command is, number one, to, number one, to stand firm in Christ. Stand firm in Christ. 
Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. The first way for the church to walk worthy of the gospel is to stand firm. Now, the call to stand firm is not unique to this passage. In fact, it's not unique to the New Testament. We see it exhorted to God's people throughout the Scriptures. Standing firm in the face of opposition is a definitive mark of God's people. In the Old Testament, we see it primarily referred to standing firm in terms of facing opposing armies on the battlefield. In the New Testament, the call to stand firm is in the face of errant doctrine, false teachers, and even demonic forces. But in both cases, standing firm is necessary because the enemies of God oppose the people of God. And this has been true ever since the garden. Ever since there was enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Those followers of the serpent have been seeking to bring destruction upon the seed of the woman And there were people in Philippi who were opposing the church. We read of this in Acts chapter 16, that when Paul brought the gospel to Philippi, that there was a mob that then attacked Paul and Silas, dragged them before the authorities, who then beat them and threw them into prison. So from the very inception of this church, this church understood opposition to the gospel. They came to faith knowing what opposition faced them. And so... We don't know specifically of the hostility that the Philippians are receiving now at the time of this writing, but we can imagine that it included verbal assaults, potentially physical assaults as well. Paul here is speaking to them almost as a commander to his soldiers. And as maybe the line, the front line of the battle is weakening, he's calling them to stand firm. Don't retreat. Don't step back. Continue to hold steady. Don't give them an inch. Hold your ground. And I'm sure this small gathering of believers meeting potentially in Lydia's house, one of the first converts there, hearing this exhortation from Paul, their leader who's in a prison cell in Rome, calling them to stand firm. No doubt their resolve was strengthened. Now, it's important to see that standing firm for Jesus Christ is not an optional activity for the Christian. It's not an exclusive group of Christians that are called to stand firm. Pastors, elders, deacons. No, standing firm is the calling for every single believer. We are all called to stand firm in Christ. It's what it means to live worthy of Jesus. Folks, increasingly in our day, we sense the hostility against the gospel. We sense that the gospel message is not as popular or familiar as it once was. We've seen the hostility, some of us more intensely than others. Some of us have been on the receiving end of disciplinary actions in the workplace because of our stance on biblical truth. Some of us have received ridicule for a personal moral standard we might have. Some 
may have even received lower grades on papers because of the biblical ethic that's argued in that paper. But we must not budge. We are not among those who shrink back, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. We must not backtrack on what we believe. We must not shrink in shame or keep our mouths closed. Brothers and sisters, let us stand firm on the truth of the gospel. This has weathered all of the attacks through all of time because it is the word of the living God. And nothing can assail the word of God. Christ is building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It is in that confidence that we can stand firm. The second way that Paul tells us to live worthy of the gospel, first is to stand firm in Christ, secondly is to strengthen our unity, to strengthen our unity. He says that we are to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So first is to stand firm, and then he says, in one spirit and in one mind. Paul explicitly is not just speaking to the individuals in the Philippi congregation. He is speaking to the group as a whole. And he wants them to stand not isolated on the battlefield, but stand arm in arm, locked tight with one another, in step. And he expresses this with two different phrases. First is, in one spirit. Now some translations capitalize the name spirit here, indicating that they think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And while I can understand the arguments there, I think it's better to understand it as a human spirit, which communicates a common purpose or a common orientation. The second phrase is with one mind. This phrase, being very similar to the one before it, communicates the idea of being of one accord. They needed to be united. And this, we know, was a distinctive of the early church in Jerusalem. Acts 4, verse 32. Luke writes of the early church there, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his, his own, but they had everything in common. Therefore, from the very beginning, the unity of the church has been a distinctive of the church of Christ. And frankly, the Philippian church would not be able to stand for very long if they weren't unified. If they were a splintered group, if there were divisions within the body of Christ and they were fighting one another and arguing over this or that, then they wouldn't be able to stand very long. One of the number one principles of warfare is that you don't split your forces, particularly when you're opposed by a strong enemy force. And so if they were divided in any way, they would be weakened in their ability to stand firm. And so Paul emphasizes the crucial role that unity would play in their witness to a watching world. Living worthy of the gospel is not something that either, either one of us can do entirely on our own. Certainly we are responsible for our own re individual actions. And all of those actions contribute to the larger witness. But obeying this command ultimately means that we need to stand arm in arm with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. The church is not composed 
of a bunch of lone rangers simply going through this life, living for Jesus, and, oh, you happen to be doing the same thing too. No, we are together in this. We can never think of the church as just a group of people who happen to believe the same thing or who happen to like hearing sermons at this church in the same way and in the same way that you happen to shop at the same grocery store as your friend. No, the church is not an accidental group of individuals. It is a family brought together by God to be the pillar and support of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And we must be united in one spirit and one mind. But this unity, this singularity of purpose does not happen by accident. We cannot just show up and think that it's going to happen. The church must strive for it. As we saw in Ephesians 4, as Pastor David went through there, that unity must be eagerly maintained, must be sought after. There's work that goes into preserving and maintaining and strengthening unity. And so if Foothill Bible Church is going to succeed in standing for Christ and living worthy of the gospel, then we must be tenacious about fighting for our unity. We must desire and long for this body to be of one heart and one mind and one soul. Friends, this means that our unity in Christ must supersede our personal preferences, our individual views, and our passionate crusades. There are a myriad of non-gospel issues that can tear us apart. That has been the truth all through the history of the church, but social media has only amped it up a notch for these issues to come to our attention. And maybe you're even sitting here this morning and you know of an issue that is affecting your relationship with somebody in this body. Friends, we must strengthen our unity in the gospel. We cannot allow these things to dissolve our unity, to weaken it, to cause us to avoid one another. We must be brought together in our common pursuit of the gospel. We can strengthen our unity by looking and dealing with the threats to our unity. And so if there's a, a, an issue upon your heart that, that is keeping you from being in full fellowship with somebody in this body, then you must either confess your sin to them or forgive them if they confess to you. Colossians 3.13 says that the church is to be a forgiving community. We cannot allow these issues to stand in our way. We also need to remember 1 Peter 4.8 that love covers a multitude of sins. So maybe there's a little issue, a little something that somebody said or did and it's, and it's eaten away at you. Maybe what you need to do is in love cover that and not allow it to stand in your way. Or maybe there's a brother or sister who's saying things or doing things that are that's weakening and eroding the unity in this body. In love, maybe you need to pursue them and confront them, speaking the truth in love. 
This is our responsibility. But we can also strengthen our unity by setting our, our sights on what we share in Christ. That we have this common salvation and a common Lord and a common mission to be about. These are the things that should occupy us. As we gaze more upon Christ and more upon the gospel, then our unity will only be strengthened. As we recognize that the, the priority, the, the biggest things in our lives and in our church is accomplishing the mission that Christ has given us. Not these particular issues that we feel so passionate about that, yes, may be rooted in some sense in God's word, but isn't the core issue of what the church is to be about. So secondly, we need to strengthen our unity. The third way that we can live out, live worthy of the gospel, is number three, to strive together for the faith. Strive together for the faith. We see this again in verse 27. He says that he wants to hear that the Philippians are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. How do we live out the gospel? Well, we stand in unity and we work in unity. The word translated striving side by side or striving together has military parallels. And it, it speaks of struggling in a contest for a common goal. That we're all on the same team, all contending and struggling for the same thing. Again, Commander Paul is rallying the troops. First he said to hold the line and to stand firm. And now he's saying that we are to move forward together. They're to press on in the work of the faith of the gospel. Again, the emphasis is doing that together. The faith of the gospel. Some take this to mean the faith which is the gospel. In the same way that Jude uses it in speaking of the faith that was once for all delivered down to us. Some take it to mean the faith that is based on the gospel, the faith that we have because of what we heard about Christ in the gospel. I don't think it matters too much either way we go, but because the, the point is clear. The Philippians are to work for the advance of the gospel. A gospel that is taught in the scriptures and a gospel that all must place their faith in. And so just like Paul, the Philippians are to work to see more people hear the gospel and believe in the gospel. And this is another way of stating the Great Commission, is it not? That all of the church is to be involved in making disciples, which means that we preach the gospel, we preach Christ, and we teach them what it means to follow Christ. And that's what Paul's saying here. That together, we're working arm in arm, side by side, together towards the work of seeing more people following Christ by believing the gospel. Again, this task does not fall to a select few. The whole church is striving together in this work. So I ask you this morning, would you say that you are striving and working and struggling with the believers here for the advance of the gospel? seeing it advance in our own hearts as we seek to grow and walk more worthy of Christ in our own lives and seeking to be a part of the ministry here and seeing the cause of Christ advance. 
Or maybe you've been doing more sitting than striving, more consuming than contributing, more waiting than working. Friends, if we are to be a gospel-worthy church, then we all must strive together for the faith of the gospel. Lastly this morning, the fourth way that Paul envisions the Philippian church and for us this morning that we would walk worthy, we live worthy of the gospel is that we would suffer without fear. That we would suffer without fear. We see this in verses 28 through 30. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but should also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. As we've seen, Paul knows that the Philippians are receiving opposition. He heard it, no doubt, from Epaphroditus, the messenger from the Philippian church who went to minister to Paul, and he no doubt gave a report of what was going on in the Philippian church. He knows they're suffering, and he wants to encourage them in that suffering. And he does this by reminding them that one of the results of standing firm for Christ is that they can face that opposition without fear. Now, we can, we can understand this fear, right? As he speaks about standing for Christ in an opposing culture, we can understand what kind of fears might be on the Philippians' hearts. A fear of ridicule and embarrassment amongst their family and friends and co-workers. A fear of loss of status, maybe, in the community. A fear of harm to oneself or to one's family. A fear of the future. What's going to happen? All these fears and others would cre- could creep into the Philippians' hearts as they suffered for their faith week in and week out. And yet Paul says that they can face those opponents without fear. The fear mentioned here, the word used for fear has been used in other places to describe the uncontrollable stampede of horses when they are frightened or spooked. And you can picture that panic of, of a herd of horses just running every which direction. And yet Paul says that a church unified around the gospel can face opposition in a cool and collected manner, ultimately basing their confidence upon Christ. I find the statement both calming and emboldening. Calming because it, it backs us off the edge of panic. We don't have to freak out when this world turns against us. We can face opponents without fear. But it's emboldening because it reminds us that we can face the enemy confidently. And I imagine it did the same thing for the Philippian church. Paul then gives three reasons why they could suffer without fear. Why could they face down their opponents with with such confidence? Because number one, this suffering was a clear sign of their destiny. Suffering is a clear sign of our destiny. Look at what he says in the end of verse 28. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. 
The Philippian church could stand firm because their suffering that they were enduring was also drawing the lines very clearly. It made clear who was on the side of God and who was on the side of Satan. By persecuting the believers, the opponents showed that they were on the path of eternal destruction. They were taking up the cause of the serpent that I mentioned earlier, who ever since the garden has been opposing God and his people. But this painful suffering also acted as assurance for the church. This wasn't a sign that God had left them in their pain. This was a sign that they were walking in righteousness, that they indeed did have salvation. They were being faithful. And for all those who stand faithful in the midst of persecution, they can have the same assurance. Perseverance is a sign of the saved. And Paul wanted to highlight this to encourage the Philippians. He says at the end of verse 28, and that from God. He's saying that all of this suffering, the opponents that are coming, that have brought this assault against them, all of this is under the sovereign hand of God. God is the one who has ordained these things. And he is the one who will one day punish the wicked and reward the righteous. He is the one from which ultimate salvation comes and ultimate judgment comes. And friends, this stands as a stark reminder this morning that there are only two destinations of mankind after death. There is a reckoning coming, a time in which we must give an account for how we have lived life and the guilt that humanity tries to cover over will be fully revealed before a holy God. If you are here this morning and you have not repented of your hardness of heart and sin against God and have not trusted in his son to save you from the wrath that you deserve, then on the authority of the word of God, I tell you that eternal destruction awaits you. I assure you that this gives no pleasure in saying that. I say it simply to be faithful to what the scriptures say. I must speak the truth. The truth is that there are only two ways to live now. And you must live how you live now will determine how you will live for all eternity. If you believe in Christ now, you will receive everlasting life. If you reject him now, you will be cast into hell where you will pay for your sins and torment. I invite all who hear my voice this morning to turn from your sins and to repent and turn to Christ. Find forgiveness for your soul at the cross of Christ. Jesus paid the penalty for your sins so that if you place your faith in him, God will reckon the righteousness of Christ to you. And one day you can stand before the judgment throne and Satan the accuser will show, will accuse you of your sins and you will say, yes, but Christ took the punishment for me. I stand in his righteousness, not my own. On my own, I am a vile, wicked person. But in Christ, I have life and I have salvation. That assurance of eternal life is only found in Christ. May all who are here this morning find that forgiveness in him.
The second reason that Paul says that they can suffer without fear is because suffering is a gracious gift from the Father. Suffering is a gracious gift from the Father. Verse 29 is a powerful verse. It flips the world's wisdom upside down. And yet, it has been the comfort of the church through the ages. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He says, It has been granted to you. This passive voice has God as the understood subject. It's been called a divine passive. No one else can do this kind of granting. No one else could have given this to them. The verb granted here stems from the word for grace. And therefore it can legitimately be translated that graciously given or graciously granted. In other words, Paul is saying it has been graciously granted to you to suffer and to believe. Paul helps the Philippians to suffer without fear by reminding them that for the name of Christ, God has caused them to believe and to suffer. Is this not backwards from how we think? We think that if pain and suffering is in our life, that we must have done something wrong and God has turned his back on us. This is what Job's counselors thought. And yet... Here we see that suffering for the sake of Christ is actually a sign of God's grace and kindness to us. It seems that God graciously gives believers the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ. It's a privilege because they are able to experience Christ in a deeper way. They are able to sense in a new way that however much they are suffering now, Christ suffered more. He bore a greater weight. And so I can endure whatever I'm enduring now. And thus greater worship and greater praise goes to our Savior who endured the greatest weight and endured the greatest suffering of all time. Folks, we need to need to realize that our suffering is from the hand of God. Suffering and pain is not outside his control. In fact, he is using it for our good. And when we grasp the truth of this verse, we can understand where James is coming from when he wrote, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How can we count it joy? Well, because we know that what we are experiencing is coming from the hand of a gracious father. The third and final reason why the Philippians can suffer without fear that Paul gives is in verse 30. And it's because a simil- it, this suffering is a similar struggle as other Christians. The Philippians don't suffer alone. We don't suffer alone. Paul reminds them of this by speaking of his own suffering. Verse 30, he says that this suffering, he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says, what you're engaged in, what you're suffering in, the, 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 the work that you're laboring in and the opposition you're receiving, I'm involved in the same thing. I might be 
fighting the battle on a different continent or in a different country, but we're all surging in the same direction. I believe he's, he's wanting to encourage them again, reminding them that they're not alone. And friends, this is the same for us and the same for believers around the world. That none of us are suffering for Christ or are receiving opposition for the gospel and are alone in this. We stand with all believers for all of time in all parts of the world. And we, as we hear of believers standing for Christ in North Korea and in China and in Africa, we can be emboldened to stand for Christ here and now. There is someone else who understands. Someone else who has counted the cost. Someone else who has had to look at the suffering to look at Christ and say, Christ is worth it. May we make that same call. We can suffer without fear because we know that others have stood firm in the face of such suffering. The same grace given to them is available to us. The same spirit that resides in them resides in us. The same hope that they have, we have. So folks, more than ever, we must be a church that conducts itself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We must stand for the truth of his word. We must fight for our unity. We must strive together in making disciples. We must face down the mounting opposition with fear. And when we do this, Christ will receive the glory because he is the cause, the power, and the goal of all that we do. This is all because of Christ. Our lives are given to him. Let us give every moment to him, every day, to live in a way that represents the name that we wear on the front of our jersey. It's Christ and his gospel. And may our lives accurately represent that by the power of his spirit. Let's ask God to help us do this now in prayer. Father, we recognize that in order to stand faithful to your gospel, to stand firm in the faith, to be actively engaged in the work of the gospel, that we desperately need your help. Father, we don't have the strength that is required. We are weak and we are frail. We are distracted. Many things that pull our attention and our focus away from what you have called us to. And Father, we still have a sin nature that is tempted towards the things that displease you. Father, not only we, do we ask that you would equip us to obey this, these instructions this morning, but we ask that you would keep us from a self-righteousness that would see any obedience, any inch of progress as happening in our own power. Father, if we, if we make any progress, may we give you the praise and humble adoration that you would choose to work in such frail and humble servants as us. We want to see your name magnified. And we ask that you would answer these prayers towards that end. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.